Welcome to the reading of Dr. Richard Ganz's book, Psychobabble, The Failure of Modern Psychology and the Biblical Alternative, copyright 1993 by Richard Ganz. This book is read and distributed with the author's permission. This MP3 audio file is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, which offers a large selection of free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed resources on the web at swrb.com. We will start reading at the beginning of the book on page 13. Chapter 1 Confessions of a Psychological Heretic Get it out, Emmanuel! The group looked on in astonished shock as Emmanuel writhed in agony. Deep breathing had progressed to violent spasms of hyperventilation. Get it out, I cried. Finally he screamed, I am God. I whipped out a small New Testament I had been carrying in my pocket. Just that morning I had read the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. I quoted it to him. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew chapter 24, verses 23, 24, and 27. Abruptly, Emmanuel's writhing, spasms, and hyperventilation ceased. He calmly asked, Where did you read that from? I told him, tossing the Bible across the room and telling him to check it out for himself. There was not another sound or another word from Emmanuel for one solid month. Four weeks later, I was sitting in my office during lunch hour, reading from the Bible and praying. Despite my earnest prayer to be used by God to bring others to Christ, so far in my eight months as a Christian, this hadn't happened. Then came the encounter that changed my life. There was a knock at my door. It was Emmanuel. I invited him in and asked, What brings you to my office? This man had spoken only a few words in several years. He looked at me now and clearly and calmly said, I want to become a Christian. It is said that people about to die experience their lives passing before them in a flash. I had that kind of experience as I looked at Emmanuel. I wanted to lead people to Christ, but had never dreamed it would happen this way, in this place. I had imagined Bible study conversions, or leading my Jewish family and old friends to Christ. But it's not what happened. Instead, here was Emmanuel, a patient at the state hospital where I was employed. I knew that talking about religious matters in this setting would have consequences for me. I had worked and studied for years with one goal in mind, that I would become a clinical psychologist. I had achieved that goal. Everything I had hoped or dreamed of was being realized. It was hard to imagine a better job with better conditions, opportunities, benefits, and possibilities. I had it all. 
Then Emmanuel stood there in my doorway and made his statement. Did I really believe in Jesus Christ? Did I really believe that salvation in Christ was the most important reality that any individual could ever possess? Did I really believe that this one man's salvation was more important than my career? I knew the answer was yes to all these questions. The proof of the sincerity of my beliefs lay in responding to his request and leading him to Christ. This was a turning point for me. It was the most important decision, apart from my commitments to Christ and my wife, that I have ever made. I said yes to this man's request and no to my own fears. Trembling, I asked Emmanuel, When do you want to become a Christian? Right now, he responded. I sat down with Emmanuel and showed him the plan of salvation, to which he heartily assented. Together we got down on our knees and Emmanuel prayed, repenting of his sin and asking Christ into his life. The years the locusts had stripped away were restored in an instant. As tears streamed down Emmanuel's cheeks, the Holy Spirit gave him a new birth, and he believed God and received Christ. The next morning the director called me into his office as soon as I arrived at work. As I sat down, he said to me, Rich, I've just heard the craziest story in the thirty-one years I've been here. Let me hear it. Those crazy stories are what it's all about. I had no idea what was to follow. Rich, he said, Emmanuel's quote-unquote saved, and he's telling everyone on the ward about it. He wants to get everyone, patients and staff, to become Christians. I sat listening as my worst fears unfolded before me. What do you say, Rich? he asked me. Is it true that you are speaking these things on the ward, as Emmanuel says? All I could sputter was, it's true. The director looked at me and explained that he didn't want to get rid of me after having selected me over many other able psychologists just a short while earlier. He urged me to give up this nonsense. He encouraged me to be a great Christian after work, but to promise to leave my Christianity out of my psychotherapy. At the time, the rich ironies of the situation weren't readily apparent to me. The goals of my therapy with Emmanuel had been to help him to speak four coherent words. Nonetheless, my director's professional curiosity was uncommonly restrained in this case. He failed to ask, How did you do it? How did you get him to speak, and so eloquently? The director informed me that if I agreed to leave Christianity out of my work, he would forget about this incident. He would be happy to transfer Emmanuel to a chronic hospital, after a few rounds of shock treatment, all this would be forgotten. I was profoundly confused. I thought, the Bible teaches that I am to submit to those in authority over me. Does this mean I must accept what he asks? I told him I would need to pray about it. I spent the night praying and reading the book of Acts. The answer seemed unmistakable. I must obey God rather than men.
Acts 5.29 And I cannot stop speaking of what I've seen and heard. Acts 4.20 The next morning I explained to my director that I must speak at all times of Christ and his salvation and restoration because those who most needed Christ were individuals just like Emmanuel. I had not chosen to resign. I had chosen to bring Christ to the hospital. I knew that if ever there was a place that needed Jesus, this was it. The director saw it differently. As far as he was concerned, I was through. Immediately, he gave me 30 days' notice. Believe me when I say that this was not the kind of life adventure I had had in mind the day I had hitchhiked into Labrie Fellowship in the Netherlands eight months earlier. Labrie is a Christian community in Switzerland with branches in the Netherlands, Great Britain, and the United States. It was founded by the late Dr. Francis A. Schaeffer IV, one of the leading Christian philosophers and apologists of the 21st century. At Labrie, I was confronted not only by the biblical truth regarding man's salvation through faith in Christ, but also with biblical counseling. As an expert, people at Labrie wondered what I thought about a new book that had just come out. The book was Competent to Counsel by J. Adams. I had never heard of Dr. Adams or Nuthetic Counseling, a counseling model that Dr. Adams developed based entirely on the teachings of the Bible. In fact, prior to coming to Labrie, I hadn't even heard of Jesus Christ except in a disparaging way. As far as I was concerned, competent to counsel would probably turn out to be simply another psychology book. Little did I realize the profound impact it would have on my life. I had already been in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. It was continuing. Does it ever end? My psychotherapy practice was psychoanalytic. I had spent years training to uncover the unconscious, break down repressive barriers and defenses, and analyze resistances and transferences. Life, I had come to believe, was simply long-term analysis. I had rejected the concept of absolutes and any notions of transcendent values. I was not prepared for what I faced at Labrie. Competent counsel declared that Nuthetic counseling sought as its goal love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control with a reference to Gal 5.22.23. What was that, I wondered, and to which Gal was he referring? I was amazed that anyone even imagined such goals, let alone sought to implement them or live by them. In all the years of my counseling training, we had never discussed or studied such lofty ideals, nor had we ever dreamed that our patients could live by such principles. My own psychotherapy practice was devoid of such concepts. It was a good thing that I had no idea what Gal 5, 
and 23 was, If I had known these goals were from the Bible, I would not have been interested. After all, I had believed the Bible was only for Sunday school children. As it was, in my pagan ignorance, steeped in secular therapies, I found the goals and methodology of nuthetic counseling awe-inspiring. Soon after this initial exposure to nuthetic counseling, I was confronted with the Gospel of Isaiah and converted. It took me a month to realize that believing in Jesus Christ meant surrender and submission to Him, with no option to turn back. This was the truth that my wife Nancy and I learned in our stay at Labrie. Our backgrounds were as different as could be. Nancy was a genteel Gentile from a small town in Ontario. I was a wild Jew from New York City. I fell in love with Nancy at first sight. She was walking alongside a canal in Venice. I was lost in more ways than one. She pulled out her map to show me where I was going, and we realized that we were both staying at the same youth hostel. That was 23 years ago, and this summer we're taking our four children with us to show them where it all happened. Nancy was studying philosophy and religion at the University of Toronto. As she got deeper into her studies, she became more and more convinced as an atheist. When our relationship grew serious, her family and mine began to worry. He's a Jew. You're a Christian. How will you raise the children? She used to answer, that's no problem. We're both atheists. It seemed to be the one similarity between us. Then Labrie happened. While God changed my life through the prophet Isaiah, he had a servant ready for Nancy as well. She began listening to tapes by Dr. and Mrs. Schaefer. She would urge me to listen to them, but I couldn't. Finally, she listened to a tape called A Bird's Eye View of the Bible by Edith Schaefer, which became the book Christianity is Jewish. This tape described the biblical theme of the Lamb of God from Genesis through Revelation. Nancy had heard Behold the Lamb of God many times, but it had never made sense. Now she understood the Old Testament roots and meaning of what John the Baptist was crying out. She saw her own need of coming to this Lamb, and she did, surrendering her life to Christ in the apple orchard at Labrie on September 6, 1972, while everyone else watched a memorial service for the 11 slain Jewish athletes at the Olympic Games. There was death in Munich, but life at Labrie. During the next eight months, I taught at the university and trained psychotherapists at the medical center complex. I read the Bible continuously and grew in the knowledge of God. My desire to apply the Word of God to people and see them come to Christ also grew. Then came Emmanuel, and I was fired. But I had thirty days' notice, and during my final thirty days at the medical center, a middle-aged Orthodox Jew came to my attention on the ward. He spent most of his time in a fetal position, doing nothing. 
I went over to him and commanded him to get up in the name of Jesus Christ. He stood up, enraged, informing me that he was a Jew. I explained that everything he longed and hoped for, both as an individual and as a Jew, could be found in the Messiah, Jesus. He rushed from the room, assuring me that he would prove me wrong. He went and got a Bible, and we began meeting to discuss what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus. I never again saw him in a fetal position. Rather, he was bent over his Bible, intent on proving that I was wrong about Jesus. One day I took him to lunch. To my amazement, he said, I want to become a Christian now. His studies had brought him to Christ. Over a hamburger and french fries, I led him to the place of mercy and living waters, from which he eagerly drank. My remaining weeks at the hospital more closely resembled revival services than psychotherapy. While these two men were growing and sharing their newfound faith, others were seeking and questioning, opening up in ways they had never dared when I was simply staff. I heard accounts of emotionally battered and scarred people who had been locked away for years, their problems never getting discussed or resolved. They began hearing of forgiveness in Christ, and a whole new dimension of my work began to take shape. Needless to say, the hospital and medical center personnel were relieved when my month was over. The three of us, Emmanuel, the Jewish man, and I, left together, for each of us it was a moment of liberation. I couldn't see then, but I wasn't just saying goodbye to the hospital. It was goodbye to a whole way of life. I was used to goodbyes. I could remember the night my father died. I was twelve years old. It was the most bitterly cold night of the year and the bitterest night of my life. While it was still uncertain whether my father would live or die, I rushed in panic and hope to the one place I thought to find comfort, the synagogue. When I arrived, the doors were locked. No amount of pounding could persuade them to open. I looked into the sky and cursed God, telling Him I was through with Him. Little did I realize it, but that night I was saying goodbye not only to my Father, but to my Father in Heaven. The synagogue had been a major part of my life. Every day from the time I was eight years old, I was in Hebrew school, and every Shabbat I worshipped, both Friday evening and Saturday morning. To all of this, without really understanding at all, I had just said goodbye. I said goodbye again when I graduated from university. I had received a fellowship for doctoral studies, and my mother, with all her immense skill at arousing guilt, asked me, Is this what I raised you for, to leave home? I responded simply, Yes. In some ways, leaving my work situation was the most difficult goodbye of all. My first weeks away from work seemed to be a goodbye to life itself. Leaving the hospital position was traumatic. I had spent my life preparing for this work, and suddenly it was gone. In the amount of time that it took to tell of Jesus, everything I'd worked for and dreamed of had disappeared with nothing left in its place, or so I thought. 
I hadn't yet learned of the blessings of faithfulness to Christ. I needed to speak with someone, both to gain guidance for the future and to help me understand the turmoil I was experiencing. About this time, I was given the name of a Christian psychiatrist in New York City. I was thrilled. He was willing to see me and proved to be a gracious Christian man. I spent several hours describing my situation. I showed him my firing notice. It stated that I was fired for using poor professional judgment by letting my religious beliefs enter into my psychotherapeutic practice. This Christian psychiatrist took me down the hall, showing me a lovely suite overlooking midtown Manhattan. He asked me what I thought of the office. I pondered for a moment and couldn't help thinking that this was just what my mother had always dreamed of for me. I looked at him and told him that it was beautiful. He replied, It's yours if you want it. Your firing letter is the best letter of recommendation I've ever received. He assured me that since he had a large private practice, there would be no difficulty starting me with a full practice as soon as I was ready. I was encouraged beyond anything I can convey, but something nagged at me. That feeling was hard to put my finger on, but it went something like this. I knew I was a Christian. I knew I was a clinical psychologist, but I didn't know what it meant to be a Christian psychologist. How did those two realities fit together? Could they? I asked him for a year to pray about his offer, and he agreed. During this year, I finished teaching at the university and earnestly considered what God wanted me to do with my life. I traveled to Los Angeles and was offered a position with the Rosemead Graduate School of Psychology. Again, I was encouraged by the offer, but I knew that my psychoanalytic psychology had no Christian foundation. I wondered how I could teach at a Christian school under those circumstances. Strangely, no one seemed concerned about this conflict except me. Providentially, during this period, I met Dr. Edward Robson, a pastor in a Reformed Presbyterian church who had a deep knowledge and love of the Bible. The months following our meeting were a veritable feast for me, as he graciously taught me the scriptures. My demands were great. At a certain point, Pastor Robson made a suggestion. Why don't you visit Westminster Seminary? When I learned that Dr. Adams, whose book Competent to Counsel I had read at Labrie, was a professor at Westminster, I made an appointment to speak with him. I can still remember that first meeting with Dr. Adams. Someone brought my wife and me to his office and announced, There's a couple here to see you. To this he bellowed, A couple of what? A couple of people was the feeble response. To say that Dr. Adams was consistent in his direct approach is an understatement. When I remarked to him that Westminster Seminary seemed to be a cold place, he replied, Warm it up. During the course of our discussion that day, Dr. Adams asked me, 
do you want to be able to say, Thus saith the Lord? I responded, Definitely. He fired back, Then you'd better know what the Lord says. When I asked about counseling at the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, his response was sharp and to the point. I don't care how many degrees you have. No one counsels here unless they know the Word of God. At that moment I knew I was going to Westminster. I finally understood that I needed to be the learner, not the teacher. Instead of coming to a lucrative job, I found myself coming to Westminster Seminary as a first-year student. I was starting all over. Just as it was when I came to Christ, starting all over was the only way to begin. I had to learn my lessons from the ground up. Even then I assumed I would eventually have an independent counseling practice. I was in for another surprise. I would learn not only how to use the Bible, but where to apply my gifts. I had to resolve a number of problems I had with the church. It took me five years to understand that I should use my skills in the pastoral ministry. The difficulties I had experienced in placing myself as a freshman in seminary were nothing compared to my struggle with the idea of becoming a pastor. But slowly I realized that the pastorate is the heart of truly Christian counseling, which is the ministry of God's holy word. I learned that I shouldn't expect or seek the approval of man. Imagine a New York City Jew becoming a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Years later, one of my relatives who would still speak to me said, You can still make something of your life. But it was the disdain of fellow Christians that was most disconcerting. They seemed to view pastoral work with contempt. If someone practiced law without legal training, he'd have no clients. If someone became a physician without medical training, he'd be sued for every cent he was worth and then some. Only in the area of pastoral work and biblical psychology, literally the study of the soul in particular, is training in theology, literally the study of God, considered if not a detriment, at the very least a waste of time. Many Christians warned me against seminary, fearing that I would lose my love for God and His Word as I studied the Scriptures. Yet, as I have studied the writings of influential Christian psychologists, I see an obvious problem. They are deficient in theological understanding. They don't know the Word of God or its power. They have devoted years to obtaining psychology degrees from secular institutions training under people much like my director at the medical center. Inevitably, the fruit of those years subverts even their best efforts as Christian believers. Sadly, this is true even of many who are most esteemed in Christian circles. We will take a look at some of their truncated Christian philosophies and see where they deviate from a truly biblical approach to human problems. My goal in this book is to help readers understand that the counseling concepts woven into psychoanalysis and its secular psychotherapeutic offshoots are inherently opposed to the Word of God. My approach will be to reveal the direct conflict 
between secular philosophies and biblical principles and to strip back to its ugly roots the psychotherapy that the church has baptized and embraced. My hope is that the church will stop shuffling her hurting and broken members to the experts who lack the power and perspective of the Word of God, that pastors will instead seize the opportunities to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness a people fit for the service of the King. Even as I write this, I am reminded that the task is difficult. Just yesterday, a desperate young woman called, a recent convert. She came to Christ with many problems. Her pastor, an evangelical, sent her to the psychiatric department of a major teaching hospital in the city. Her doctors put her on powerful psychotropic medication, and she began seeing a psychotherapist. This young Christian asked me, Shouldn't Christians be able to get biblical counseling? I hope my book awakens pastors and helps them to keep their flock from the clutches of the psychiatric establishment. It has been said before, but we need to hear it again. Men and women of God, you are competent to counsel one another. May God enable you to accomplish this task.